Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMPM podcast. My name is Manny Coates, and I will be your host. And this is the show where we discuss all things Amazon private label and how to generate recurring revenue streams 24 hours per day during the AM and the PM, hence the name of the show. Get it? AMPM podcast. Today, I'm going to be joined by Nathan Resnick. Nathan is just down the road from us in San Diego. He's been selling on Amazon for eight years, does six figures in sales, and now runs Sourceify, uh, which is the fastest growing B2B sourcing platform, helping hundreds of companies manufacture their products overseas. A couple things about you, Nathan, I have here on my notes. Just want to uh, make sure these are accurate. It says, you lived in China and speak Mandarin fluently, and you invented the first leather watch strap without holes. That is correct. What's that about? What, what was the first strap without holes? Yeah, you know, so really my story actually starts on the ground floor in China where I was one of 48 American high school students that the government sent over during my junior year of high school to live with a host family that didn't speak English and attend a local Chinese high school. So I was literally seeing these factories on the ground floor when I was 16 years old. And I became so amazed by the power of these factories to create products that I always wanted to create my own. And so literally the invention that I created of the first leather watch strap without holes worked like a zip tie, like those belt buckles that we grew to a six figure company on Shopify was around really just those belt buckles. You know, I saw the watch straps and I was never necessarily into watch straps, but I always wanted to create my own product. And that was the first product that came to mind. So we went through the process of not only, you know, filing for a patent, but also bringing that, that product to life and scaling it up through a Shopify store. Okay, cool. And do you still sell that product? Or was that something for I ended up selling the e-commerce company about two years ago and, you know, transitioned to focus completely on the supply chain and manufacturing side of the business through Sourceify. Okay, cool. Tell us just a little bit about Sourceify. Totally if you had to sum cool. it up in two or three sentences, what would it be? Oh, yeah. So, the elevator pitch right here. Ready? Drum roll. <laughs> Let's do it. So, you know, Sourceify, is, we're the fastest growing B2B sourcing platform backed by Y Combinator. We help hundreds of different companies manufacture products around the world, uh, both small and big companies. But basically, we have a software platform that streamlines your manufacturing process where you can actually track products as they're being produced. So you don't have to, you know, email and use Excel to manage a production run. You can actually see what's going on in your production run and use our verified factories. We have over 700 factory partners around the world and produce everything from watches and hats to bunk beds and casters. Oh, that's cool. So 700 around the world. What are the, what would be the main countries? Main countries are China, Vietnam, India, Pakistan, and Mexico. Um, And it's all based on, you know, what people are looking to produce and also, you know, labor rates. As uh, China becomes more expensive, companies look to produce outside of China into Vietnam and Thailand and some other, you know, Southeast Asian-based countries. But really, at the end of the day, you know, you got to analyze the defect defect rates as well as you move out of China. So you got to keep in mind a, a lot of different variables are now with, uh, you know, our president here with, with tariffs, you got to keep that in mind as well. Okay. Yeah, that's true. What would be the right way to manufacture a product? Somebody's getting into this. So when we look at manufacturing products, you got to ask yourself three main questions. Number one, is this product even interest you? You know, are you going to be a customer of this product? Would you buy this product yourself? Because you see a lot of entrepreneurs that are going into products and not even wanting to buy the products they're looking to sell. So ask yourself that first. Secondly, you got to look at the margin. You know, do the numbers make sense? If you're going to sell your product for $100, you usually want to aim to have about a 70, 75% gross margin. And then the rest of the margin is going to be used to be 
spent on operation costs, marketing costs, taxes, all of that add up. And if you don't have a big enough margin where let's say you want to make, you know, you want to net at least $10 per product, that doesn't make sense when you're running the numbers behind uh, potentially producing a new product, then it doesn't make sense to go out and produce that product. And number three is the complexity. You know, when you step into manufacturing a new product, if you have to spend $30,000 right off the bat to create a new mold, is that going to make sense as your first product? Probably not because that $30,000 is a cost you're going to have to recoup through that profit that you're creating. And so really those are the three main kind of key questions that we ask people when they're looking to produce products, because a lot of times, you know, maybe it'll be yes and yes to, to two of the three. And that third one will, will hold you back. You know, if the numbers don't make sense, then it's not going to uh, be worthwhile to start selling that product. Yeah. Are you, are you suggesting that if somebody wants to create a pretty unique product and it's going to require a mold to not do that for the very first product so they don't have to recoup those costs? I'm going to say, I'm saying it's going to be a lot harder. I would say a lot of times, you know, the way that we see companies scaling up to, you know, 50 plus million dollars is by creating their own brand. You know, the brand equity behind your company is really what a lot oftentimes creates that scalability. You know, you look at the top 100 Shopify stores in the world right now, and they're all primarily segmented in 10 product categories. You know, there's no magic tricks out there. A lot of times, especially through Shopify and big commerce, you have these, you know, 50 plus million dollar stores that have created an amazing brand. And that brand equity goes so far with their customers where it doesn't matter what logo they put on what product, you know, if they put their logo on that product, customers are going to buy it because it has their brand stamp on it, you know? Okay. You mentioned 75%. So 25%, would that include the cost of the product and the shipping and getting everything to Amazon? Or is that just for the cost of the product itself? So typically I would say if you're looking to sell a product for a hundred dollars, you want to be spending less than $25 to actually manufacture that product. Mm -hmm. You know, shipping costs will add, uh, add, add onto it. And then your operations costs, your marketing costs, your tax, all of that is added into kind of the operations cost and just cost of selling it. Okay. All right. So people listening right now are probably thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to start sourcing stuff. How would they know in your opinion, whether they're dealing with a factory, a trading company, somebody else, a wholesaler, et cetera. Great question. So really, you know, one of the first, you know, main problems with Alibaba and global sources and big open marketplaces like that is that about 70% of those companies are trading companies or wholesalers or agents. And you typically want to go directly to a factory. So one of the best ways to find out right off the bat is the name. You know, if the name on Alibaba has trade company or international or something like that, it's typically not a factory. Really the way you find and search for factories is number one, by understanding the raw materials of the products they claim to produce. If you go to it, let's say you're going to the Canton Fair, you know, Canton Fair is coming up here in a few weeks. You go to the Canton Fair and go in a booth and the company that you're in the booth of claims to produce, you know, sunglasses and hats. They probably only focus on one of those product categories or they don't produce either and just work with partner factories to, to produce those. And they're a trading company. And so really, if you analyze the raw material and say, okay, what actually goes into producing this product and take that approach to it, you have a much higher likelihood of finding a factory that produces that specific product. Like for us, for example, with sunglasses, the factories that we work with to produce plastic sunglasses are different than the factories we work with to produce wooden sunglasses. The raw materials are different. And a lot of times it doesn't even matter behind the actual products. It matters behind the raw materials. So understand, you know, really what, 
your product is made up of and then dive deeper into that to analyze it. I mean, certain questions you can ask, um, you know, obviously I think one of the best kind of ways to analyze a factory without being on the ground floor is either video chatting in through WeChat or Skype or have the sales rep go around the facility with a piece of paper that has your name on it, the date, and take photos of the facility. So that way you know at least they have access to this facility. Uh, but really, like, for us, we, you know, at Sourcefy, we have our own office in Guangzhou and, you know, go to hundreds of different factories. But really, at the end of the day, for a remote seller that's not interested or hasn't been to Asia, or even if you're looking to source a new product through an open marketplace, take steps to really conduct your due diligence. You know, don't just trust these open marketplaces and really to cut your costs, you're always going to want price transparency in there. Okay. So essentially, yeah, if, if, if they're selling more than one specific thing, if they're selling, you know, wrenches and at the same time they're selling golf balls, chances are they're not a factory. They're, they're a trading company or they're a wholesaler, correct? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, really that's kind of the, one of the scary things about working with these trading companies is that they can you know disappear very readily, mm-hmm. you know, and also the, point of blame is can be lost. You know, if something happens where the defect rate is crazy high or they don't produce quality products, you're blaming the trading company. The trading company is going on to blame the factory. There's really this mismatch of responsibility. You know, you aren't sure really, sometimes you don't even know who the factory is. You just know the trading company. The trading company can say, oh, here's our office. You know, you don't actually know where the factory is. And that's really scary for any entrepreneur or company producing products overseas. When do you think it's okay for somebody to use a trading company versus dealing directly with a factory? I would say the benefits of using a trading company are number one, if you're producing at low order quantities and number two is if you're producing across a lot of different product categories. Like if you don't want to deal, if you're producing in 10 different product categories and don't want to deal with 10 different factories to produce those 10 different products, mm-hmm. a lot of times a trading company can consolidate the production of those products. And there are some good trading companies out there. You really just want to find the ones that focus on specific product categories though, because they'll be the experts in that product category and they'll be the ones that get you the best pricing on that product category. Okay. So if you want to find a good trading company, again, sort of consolidate. If you're looking for flying kites, then find a trading company that has a thousand different kites and they're working with all the factories that actually make kites. That's what they specialize. They focus on that and they'll get you the best price. Right. Versus exactly. dealing with one factory that might only do three types of kites. Exactly, exactly. And especially at the Canton Fair, you know, you go to these big, big uh, trade shows and you have some booths that have like, you know, 10, 20 different product categories that don't even match up or add up to each other. It's like, how are you guys an expert in all these different product categories? You know, that doesn't make sense. Right, right. So how would somebody who's getting into this, you know, they're not an expert like you. So they go in, they're, or actually they're, they're not there, let's say. Most people aren't going to be in China. So they're here, they're negotiating through Skype or, or however they're doing it. How do they cut their manufacturing costs down and how much can they cut it down by, in your opinion, from the initial start of that communication? Right. So, you know, if you're going through a trading company or a wholesaler, I say typically you're looking at cutting your costs by about 30% on average, um, especially one of the things we see in the retail world where retailers are traditionally buying through wholesalers. When you, say, now, sorry, when you say 30%, are you talking about from the initial price they give you or what the, what's on the site or what's that 30%? Well, from the initial price that you, they give you. Like if you're cutting your costs and let's say you think you're buying through a trading company or a wholesaler and want to go directly to a factory, typically you can save about, you know, 20 to 30% depending on the product category um, and depending how you're currently purchasing or producing that product. So really I think to cut your costs and make that transition, number one, 
understand and ask yourself, do you think you're actually working with the factory? And number two, if you are working with the factory, you need to dive into your component costs. You know, a lot of times entrepreneurs and companies don't understand that these products are made up of different pieces. You know, for example, watches, this is a great example where your watch strap, your watch hands, your watch case, watch movement will all come from little suppliers throughout China. And if you really want to dive in and cut those unit costs or figure out what's going on with your defect rate, you can dive into those specific parts suppliers. And that can be as simple as, look, you know, I want to see the breakdown of each piece that makes my product. Because most of the times, even in apparel, you're going to be working with these cut and sew or assembly factories. And so in apparel, as an example, if you want to cut down and, and really dive deeper into your costs and figure out what makes up your unit costs, you've got to break down the fabric costs and how that fabric is made and how, how, how it you know, comes together. And so by diving into these specific unit costs, you're really able to actually cut your overall costs. So for example, you know, if you start spending, let's say, $250,000 a year on production and you're able to cut the cost of your watch strap by 50 cents, that adds up quite a bit over time as you scale up. And so I think really taking this approach of understanding how your products are better or are produced enables you to better, you know, analyze your unit costs and understand how your unit cost comes to be. Because at the end of the day, your factory is assembling these products for you. You know, they're handling the packaging a lot of times too. And so for you, you really want to analyze how is this price actually, you know, how does this price actually come about? And so by asking those questions, you're able to have more insight into your unit costs. What if the supplier says, uh, no, we, we don't want to show you our source for ingredients. You know, that's our trade secret. Yeah. I mean, I would say, here's the thing, you can, you know, there's always going to be other suppliers out there to work with. I think the thing is you can start bringing, trying to bring other suppliers to the table. Um, I would say it's not going to make sense to really dive into your unit costs or the actual, you know, pieces that make up your product until you're spending about a hundred thousand dollars on production a year. Um, and then really dive deeper and see, you know, how is this factory getting this price and, and dive deeper into each, part of their supply chain because every supply, you know, every factory you work with primarily has their own supply chain. You know, they aren't the ones that usually have their own fabric mills. They aren't the ones that have, you know, their own uh, embroidery factories. Like it really just depends on the product, but dive into a factory's own supply chain. How do you know, um, let's say you're selling an electronic product. You can pick whatever it is. Let's say it's a, uh, an electronic clock. And, and you negotiate just a killer deal. Like, man, I just got them down from, uh, you know, $4 a unit to $3 per unit. Right. We've heard stories where companies will say, all right, they'll agree to that. And then they start, they get cheaper components or they get cheaper parts that they stick in there to, to make that happen. And if you ask them, Hey, are you using cheaper stuff? And they say, no, yeah. without actually tearing the stuff apart. Is there yeah. anything anybody can do? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of times you can do QC actually on the facilities that are producing those specific products. So like, for example, with clocks, let's say they're using a different battery or a battery that's going to you know, die out a lot faster. You could actually potentially do QC on that battery before they put it into the product. Because the thing is, obviously, when they put that clock together, you don't want to have to undo it to actually see the inside components. And so in that scenario, you'd want to do the QC before it's put together. Um, and obviously it depends on the scale. You know, if you're just starting to sell, it's not going to make sense to dive this deep into your unit cost. But if you're scaling up and you know, when 50 cents or saving a dollar goes a really long way, it, it can matter a lot. Have you um, 
do you guys have any companies that you recommend uh, people use uh, for, for QC? Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, good QC companies out there. I mean, Asia Inspection One, there's Tradeator, there's um, a whole bunch like VTrust. And, you know, most of them do a pretty good job. You also have to kind of worry and, and question the uh, kind of under the table method that some of these QC inspectors take where if the products have a very high defect rate, they might put something else on your actual QC inspection report and the factory boss that they're conduct conducting the QC check um, will pay them off basically. And so you've got to be wary of that and really work with companies that you can trust. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it comes down to the relationship. You know, I think really what a lot of people misunderstand in e-commerce is that your supply chain directly correlates and is really the backbone of your e-commerce business where if you can, you know, produce your products at a more affordable rate than your competitors can, you can acquire customers for more money because at the end of the day, if you can pay more to acquire a customer and stay profitable, you can beat out your competitors. And so really your supply chain directly overlaps with your digital marketing campaigns. Right. You know, if I know I can spend $5 more to acquire a customer than my competitors, then I can beat them. And that $5 is where I would look, I would like to save $5 on my supply chain. Then, you know, how can I either cut my shipping costs or production costs to be able to spend more on paid ads to acquire a customer? Almost everybody is getting products. People that I know, they're either getting them here from the U.S. The majority of them are also are getting it from China. You say you you're global. What other countries would you source from, other than China? And what would be those niches or, or those specific things? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing: when you look, let's say, for example, in Mexico, in Mexico, it's it's the, they have NAFTA. You know, the North American Free Trade Agreement enables the free trade flow between Mexico to America to be very smooth. But at the end of the day, a lot of times these fa factories in Mexico, especially in the apparel world are getting that raw material, getting that fabric from Asia. And so the lead times can be a lot longer. Um, I would say Vietnam is becoming very strong for apparel. India has in Pakistan have been pretty strong for sports equipment and apparel. Um, and really, especially in the apparel world and some of these other kind of more higher touch point products, it comes down to labor costs. And especially as labor costs in China have been increasing, companies in, in, are looking to other countries to produce their products. And really, you know, you have economic development councils set up throughout the world in specific cities or uh, states throughout the world. And their job is to boost trade in that region. And so sometimes if you can connect with a, you know, economic development council in a certain region that you think will be capable of producing your product, you can actually go through a production run in a smoother process. Um, you know, at Sourceify, we work with economic development councils around the world, which has been huge for us to boost trade in regions around the world. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the process. You know, if you have to start communicating with a hundred different factories in a hundred different, you know, places, it's going to take a lot of your time to manage that process. And that's why you see a lot of, you know, e-commerce companies scaling up to have their own operations team or supply chain team. Um, and it's, you know, it can be good and bad. It really just depends on your strategy. And I think in the supply chain world, your strategy has to come down to optimization and really understanding your customers. Okay. What do you look for uh, when producing a product? So, you know, for me personally, I think the biggest thing is, is interest. Like, do I get excited by this product? And, um, 
part of it is also following trends. Like I'll tell this quick story that we did with uh, Conor McGregor, where Conor McGregor wore these pinstripe suits that had the words, you know, F-U-F-U going down the suit to his press conference with Floyd Mayweather. And it went viral. You know, we were, or it was all over the news and we saw that at SourceFight. We said, look, let's launch this suit. Let's, pay, let's produce these suits faster than anyone else and launch an e-commerce store around these suits. So we launched fusuits.com the next day, had samples of the suit at our facility here in San Diego within five days and launched this e-commerce brand. Did $23,000 in the first week all through social media, didn't spend a dollar on, on ads or whatnot. I mean, literally it was fueled through the trends, the viral trends that were going around. Like we were on the hype beast, bro Bible, the slate, all these massive media outlets picked it up. And, you know, at the end of the day, we were using some of Conor McGregor's IP to sell this suit. So I ended up getting a cease and desist from him, which is a lesson in, in marketing. But, you know, at the end of the day, it created a lot of hype and, and was able to spread so fast by following a trend. So I think, if you're looking for a quick turn and a quick start, look for different trends that you can latch onto. If you're looking for more of a sustainable business and a sustainable, you know, e-commerce route, find a product that excites you. Like for me personally, when I invented the first leather watch strap without holes, I remember getting the text message from DHL when I was in class saying, Hey, Nathan, you know, your, your sample has arrived. I ran home, you know, drove home as fast as I could open the box. And that was the coolest feeling in the world. You know, Actually having a product that was in your head a few months prior and getting that first sample is incredible. And that's something that only a entrepreneur gets to feel. And it's really something that, you know, we empower people to do every day at Sourceify, which is awesome. Like, that's why I'm so excited by what we're doing. But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, like, am I interested in this product or is it just kind of a turn and burn type of business that you see a lot of, you know, drop shipping entrepreneurs taking? That's cool. Okay. Yeah. And I remember the, that first feeling. It's kind of the first feeling for everything, right? The first feeling you see your product, or you get the sample when you get the finished product. First time you get that first check or that first wire from Amazon. Right. You know, the first time you see six figures, it's, it's pretty awesome. What, what would be, give us a, what's been your biggest mistake related to selling on Amazon or, or one of the bigger mistakes? What comes um, Yeah. You know, so right now because of SourceFi, I don't currently sell on Amazon myself, but when I was in high school and college, I was, and I think really, you know, I'll address the trends that we see in the ecosystem because we're actually starting to produce that SourceFi for a lot of these different marketplaces. And it's going to be interesting in the future where these marketplaces are starting to extend their private label, you know, white label brands like Amazon already has their own athletics brand, their shoe brands. You know, they have obviously the Amazon basics line, it's going to be interesting to see that dynamic as these marketplaces control the supply side of their marketplace. You know, what happens when Amazon starts competing with your products directly? They have a lot of control, obviously, on the traffic and what products are viewed when. And, you know, if they change up their algorithm on your product, it can completely change the sales trajectory of your product. And so I think, you know, it's something you have to ask yourself as an e-commerce seller is, do I want to be focused on one marketplace? And that's where I think a lot of, you know, amazing tools come in like Skubana that enable you to sell effectively across marketplaces and platforms are very important because, you know, at least in my mind, I don't think you want to be focused on one specific sales channel. You want to be focused across different sales channels. So if something happens with that one sales channel, you're able to, you know, still continue to grow your business. Um, And so I would say really, Right now, if you're an e-commerce seller that's starting to scale up, start 
focusing across sales channels because I think it's going to be interesting in the future to see what Amazon and some of these other marketplaces do like top hatter, for example, when they start to create more white label and private label brands. Yeah. That's what I, I love these uh, one-on-one conversations that we have because everybody has, you know, sometimes we'll have opposing opinions. I agree. I, I, I think expanding could be great. I, I, I come from a different side, a different perspective. I'll, I'll disagree with new sellers trying to expand too much. And this is kind of a polarizing topic, right? Because you got so many people that will say expand into different markets and other people that say don't for different reasons, right? I, I literally had somebody on, a, on the podcast not too long ago that sells Amazon businesses and says, hey, you'll get a higher valuation if you expand into uh, different marketplaces. But I was just at a dinner with another guy that's trying to buy uh, you know, n- nearly a billion dollars worth of business off of Amazon, actual Amazon businesses that he says he won't pay an extra dollar if you're on Walmart or anything like that, unless it's a massive amount. So for those of you listening, my opinion on that is focus on Amazon until you either have a team that's big enough that can handle expansion or until it's more than 5%. Because honestly, it doesn't really matter if you're 95% on Amazon and then 5% everywhere else. If right. Amazon shuts you down, you're still a, in a big you're in a big pile of poo, right? I mean, so, and then then just from my experience, guys, it's hard. I'm so busy with everything. I'm I'm sure you are, Nathan, too, where if you're trying to get really good at one thing, which is Amazon, and now you got to relearn everything over here to be on Walmart and then everything over here to be on this external site somewhere, unless you have the bandwidth, it it becomes difficult. But, and, and no disrespect to what you're saying. I think it's, it's, it's a great yeah, thing. I mean, you, def- you definitely have to focus like you're saying. I'm, I'm saying when you're at a point where you have, you know, a few people on your team and looking to scale up and really looking to diversify, I think it's important to use tools to enable you to sell across different channels um, because I do think within the next, you know, five, 10 years, it'll be interesting to see what Amazon does with their private label, white label brands. Cool. So we, um, we just recently released a tool from Helium 10 called Black Box, which allows people to go in and you can actually, it's basically, if you don't know what you want to sell on Amazon, you can, it kind of gives you ideas. It has 450 million ASINs to start with. And then you can say, I want oversized or regular says, I want something that generates $30,000 a month. I want it to be in baby. I don't want it. I want it to weigh between one pound and 1.2 pounds or 20 pounds and hundred pounds. Basically just about any criteria that you want, you can stick in there and it'll take 450 million ASINs and it'll bring it down to maybe 50 or hundred. If somebody were doing this based on your knowledge, and, and what you've done, what would be some criteria that you think would be pretty cool to filter to get rid of most of the noise out there yeah. um, so they can focus on some good stuff? That sounds like an epic tool. I got to check that out. <laughs> yeah. If you want after the, after the call here, I'll run you through it. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Um, you know, I think really when you're analyzing products to sell, you obviously have to look at the numbers. Like that's most important for sure, because if the numbers don't make sense, then your business isn't going to make sense. And then you got to look at the complexity and look at the competition. You know, if, People have invested a lot into a mold to create a product. You either need to go out and try to, you know, find a factory that's willing to let you use their mold or you got to invest in one yourself. And so I think it comes down to the numbers really. Um, You know, it also comes down to the competition. You know, what are people spending to drive traffic to their Amazon, you know, uh, pages and and Amazon listings? You got to really understand, you know, how are you going to sell your product? I don't think like a lot of times you can't just put a product online and, and magically start selling. You know, you have to build up those reviews. You have to build up that traffic. And I think that's really a key of selling on Amazon is really starting to create 
uh, trust basically through reviews and, and by creating a good experience. Yeah. And that's one of the filters as well. You can read, I only want stuff that has one seller instead of a hundred sellers and nothing more than 20 reviews. And you know, there's a lot of stuff that you guys can do with that to kind of narrow things down. But I, I agree. I, I think finding the right thing, finding something that that's already probably selling pretty well. It's great to jump onto something like you did. You did an awesome thing. You know, you found that trend before anybody else jumped on it. It's probably like the first guy that did fidget spinners. Yeah, I, remember, yeah. I remember being in China with people coming up to us going, showing us these little spinner things going, Oh, popular here, popular here, you know? And we're like, nobody would ever use those in the United yeah. States. <laughs> and then like a few months later, bam, and you know, like people are seeing millions, but that's cool. I'm going to put you on the spy here. Uh, and you don't, if you don't know, that's okay. Do you have any ninja tip that you might've heard about recently that you think is kind of a cool thing for any Amazon sellers or something maybe you've done in the past that brings some pretty interesting value? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good question. I think, you know, really to scale up your business, like it kind of goes back to the question about focusing, you know, find like, don't start with 10 or a hundred products right off the bat. Start with like, you know, one, two or three, you know, get those three products going and then start scaling up. I think really kind of one of the biggest missteps you see Amazon sellers starts to do is they start trying to diversify across products too fast like dominate a certain product category and then move forward or dominate certain keyword search terms and then move forward with other ones. You know, I think at the end of the day, you see people that are trying to spread themselves too thin. And I think that's a huge misstep in the e-commerce world, especially like, you know, even like I'm saying across channels, like don't try to start selling across channels. If you aren't doing well on Amazon first, do well on Amazon and then move forward across channels. It's same with ranking for keywords. Like first go after certain keywords, crush those keywords and then start targeting other ones. And you can understand like there's so many, you know, analytical tools out there that enable you to see what keywords are going to drive what kind of traffic. Yeah. So we, we have, we have several of those actually. Yeah. It's amazing tools that you should all be utilizing and, you know, really run the numbers behind that. Like, let's say, you know, you can get a hundred visitors through, you know, X keyword to your product. You know, what do you think your conversion rates are going to be? Run the numbers behind those keywords and then figure out, you know, how many keywords you have to rank for to scale up to a point that you want to be at. Cool. Cool. So if people want to find out more about Sourceify, they want to jump in and, and have you help them with that business. What's the easiest way to get a hold of you? Totally. They just go to trysourceify.com. And, uh, you know, if you Google Sourceify, we're all over the web as well. Cool. And then we're going to tag you uh, when we post this thing live in our Facebook group. Guys, if you don't know about that, if you're, this is your first time listening, head over to the FBA High Rollers group. Okay. You can type that into Facebook or you can go to ampmpodcast.com forward slash Facebook. And we've got, I think about 40,000 Amazon sellers in there. So we'll tag Nate in there. And if you guys have questions, feel free to ask and I'm sure he'll be more than happy to, to answer those. So yeah, sounds great. Cool. Nate. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been really cool. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to look into uh, Sourceify. We're always looking for expansion and, and checking things out and um, we'll talk soon. I have a game changer for you. Okay. So a lot of people have been asking me what tool can they now trust and use for reverse ASIN searches? Well, I have good news. I'm incredibly happy to announce an insanely awesome new tool called Cerebro. Cerebro. That's the Spanish word for brain and that's what this thing is. It's a keyword brain. Cerebro is the newest and most powerful tool in the Helium 10 software suite for Amazon sellers and 
It's the only reverse ASIN that I'm ever going to use at this point. It's insane. Honestly, try it and you'll see for yourself. Cerebro is fast, really fast, like really, really fast. Just enter a competitor's ASIN and bam, within seconds, you get back tons of keywords. It's crazy, okay? But it gets better. Cerebro is free for everybody. That's right, guys. It's free. If all you want is keywords and you don't want to uh, get any other data other than keywords, you don't need to go anywhere else and pay for reverse ASINs anymore. Okay, let me say that again. You do not need to go anywhere else and pay for reverse ASIN searches ever. Okay, forget about other tools. Everybody, that's everybody, gets two free uses per day on Cerebro. So that's 60 ASIN searches per month for free. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. So I've mentioned the word free a few times now, but we do have paid plans as well. If making money is an important part of your business plan, then paid members can use the Cerebro IQ score. Okay, we call it the Cerebro IQ score, and that shows you which keywords have the best ratio of search volume to total competing products. This is a game changer, guys. So I personally, I wanna know which keywords I can rank number one for and know the exact volume of sales I need per day to achieve that. And you can watch my ranking strategy video once you are signed into Cerebro. Okay, watch that video by clicking the blue learn button. And then you'll uh, be able to figure out how I actually do my ranking and get number one rankings for the keywords that I want. Now, paid users can also see the most accurate search volume data I've ever seen for keywords, allowing you to make smart decisions on which keywords to use in your listings. This is why I said I don't use any other tools now for keywords, just Cerebro. And in the past, I've said that. I said, go out there and use a bunch of different keyword tools, including ours, so that you can get a lot of data. No longer the case. I'm not saying that. Cerebro is all you need trust me on this okay i'm redoing all of my listings now with the data from cerebro and i'm going to be talking about the results that i get from these changes in future podcasts i would love to see you as a paid helium 10 member but remember everybody gets 60 asin searches per month for free that's two per day that's the way we set it up so if all you want is up to 2,000 keywords per asin without any other analytics data boom you're set if you're a power user that wants to crush your competition then upgrade to the gold, the platinum, the diamond plan, and get all of the analytics. That's what I do. That's what all the big guys crushing it on Amazon are doing. Okay, so you can try Cerebro today at helium10.com. Remember, it's free if you'd like. And please be a superstar, okay? Go out there and let other Amazon sellers know that they can now get reverse ASIN searches for free. Okay, they don't have to go and pay for them anywhere else. For free with Cerebro. And that's at helium10.com. You've been listening to the AM PM podcast hosted by Manny Coates. For more information, insider, insider tools, tools, and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit ampmpodcast.com.